Good morning. This is Alicia Bales. I am live in the Fort Bragg studio this morning, and this is Byline Mendocino. Byline Mendocino comes to you every other Friday, alternating with Joy LeClaire and Forthright Radio uh, for just a spell here. I'm back for kind of a special series while politics, a love story, and Bob Bashansky takes a, a little break. So I'm happy to be back, and I'm excited this morning. I'm in Fort Bragg because I have a special guest live in the studio, Renee Montaigne, uh, a voice you are very familiar with from hosting Morning Edition from 2004 to 2016, and now a special correspondent for NPR News. Good morning, Renee. Good morning, Alicia. Thank you so much. So you're in town because you are um, a juror at the Mendocino Film Festival. I, I am indeed. It's the um, appropriate for me. It's the documentaries uh, that that I and two other jurors uh, watched, all seven of those that, that are in competition and, and chose one. And I'm I'm here to be part of the part of the film festival That's as so, well. Some, so of, cool. some of the jurors are here, and a few of them are not. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'll start it right at the top. If in, I hope lots of people are going to the film festival, but also if you're going to go to one documentary, I'll tell you the winner because we announced it last night. Um, Blind ambition, and it's just a great. I'll, I'll say this, and then we we'll get back to what we really want to talk about, which is in <laughs> And um, but it, it's a wonderful documentary that in this day of of um, refugees and illegal so-called immigrants undocumented people circling the planet, this is about four refugees from Zimbabwe who found themselves in South Africa and discovered wine and became genius wine tasters. Thus, the blind. It's blind wine tasting. That's what it refers to, and I, it'll give you such a good feeling and I think we all need that <laughs> to go to this documentary you will come out smiling and feeling like the world is there's some really right good things in the world good things happen so and I love too that it's wine so there's sort of a local Perfect. yeah like <laughs> local expertise about it oh, um, yes. but uh, but definitely a global international story and also a very personal story right these four yeah youngish Zimbabweans they were young when they came they're probably they have families now yeah you know effectively fled Zimbabwe that's a thing you might not realize it Zimbabwe is sort of like um, the way Mexico and the border is to the U.S., uh, Zimbabwe, the to northern border of South Africa, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of problems. I mean, the Zimbabweans have been attacked increasingly as it gets worse economically in South Africa. So they've gone through really torture, and then there's this whole layer of finding out about wine that I bet you folks actually don't know. I did not know what high-level wine tasting was about and has absolutely nothing to do with enjoying the wine. I mean, what they, I, I, I wish I had written it down, but it, it's something along the lines of to be a wine tasting team representing the country, going to the wine tasting Olympics, uh, seriously, in France, which is what they do. You follow them on this journey. Um, and and it, it turns out you have to be able to, like, taste in, like, within a minute, say where this, it's a blind tasting, what region, what label, what year, and they're international wines. I, I was wondering it, it, how almost, what a wine competition would be. I mean, oh, what would you do? Just enjoy it the most? No, well, you can identify the year. The big ones that come, their wow. countries, teams come from countries 
all over the world. Japan, there was a team from Japan. No, Af Zimbabwe is the only African nation, well, South Africa too, but South Africa was actually mostly white, as you might expect, because those are the people who, you know, wine is their, is their world. In, um, in Zimbabwe, beer. Literally, literally, these four guys had never tasted wine before they ended up in Cape Town, South Africa, as waiters. And they had to learn how to be sommeliers and um, it, to, be, to get up, you know, step up in terms of their jobs. And they, they all did successfully. And at least two of them hated the taste of wine at the beginning and then grew to love it. Ah. But, yeah, so it's a real complicated and rich um, telling of several stories. But, yes, I had thought about this myself last night. I was thinking, well, this is the perfect place for this, this documentary to win this, in this particular film festival. Here we are in Mendocino. And, and I, you cannot be interested in the wine aspect of it. Right. It, it, it's not a sad story. It, there's sadness in it, but it's not a sad story. So this is Blind Ambition, which you announced last night at the <laughs> event for the. It's not. Was it the kickoff event? It for was the, film the festival? Kick, Yeah, it was the kickoff event. Oh, but it was exciting. private. It was. It was those not private. It, lots of people, but it was um, the, the supporters of the festival. Uh huh. And you screened Blind Ambition last night. They screened night. it. Yes. So, but it's in the, it's in the festival. So look around. Throughout the weekend, people can look at the yeah, Film the Festival and, website and I look, mean, go attend all of the screenings. But so, okay, so, so I'll reintroduce you. This is Renee Montaigne, <laughs> who is in town for um, the Mendocino Film Festival as a juror. Have you been a juror in uh, on a film festival? Yeah, in any kind of. <laughs> I've been jurors on um, on awards here and there for a while. I was on the jury of the Anderson of all things Business Awards of UCLA. I mean, yeah. So here and there, I've been a juror. But no, not, not on a film festival. How lucky am I that my first experience, here I live in Los Angeles, you know, but my first experience of being a juror on a, um, appropriately a documentary, uh, you know, nonfiction sort of event, but how lucky am I that it ended up being, you know, the Mendocino right. Film Festival, which, and its first time back live this year for two years, of course, as ever so many things Exactly. Are. Everything's kind of yeah. waking back up and yeah. coming back to real life, you know. Where we and get going to, in, too. Yeah. I mean, going into a theater to yeah. watch the films, I have to say, you know. And it's throughout the weekend, and there are many different categories and mm -hmm. um, a lot of people in town for this. I f it's mm -hmm. one of those times, I feel this a lot, but it's one of those times when I feel very lucky to be part of this incredible community in Mendocino County. And it, uh, there's all these pockets, too. This is a very coastal thing, that the coast is coming together to put this festival on and bringing you and other sort of luminaries from around the country <laughs> to, to Mendocino to, to be part of this and celebrate amazing, not just filmmaking, but storytelling. So um, let's talk about uh, your kind of background in radio. So you started in radio way, way, way back. A boy, I yeah, antediluvian, right? It really definitely predates the the dinosaurs. Uh, who could tell? <laughs> who who could have thought? Is pretty much my my signature right now. I yes, I'm from the Bay Area. I mean, look, I was born in California, on Camp Pendleton. Actually, my father was a Marine uh, at the time and was a career Marine, but joined very early in his teens. So he's 17. So he was left uh, the Marines when I was still a young girl, but uh, the grazed mostly in Hawaii and came back to the Bay Area because he was an engineer and 
a brilliant man generally in so many ways, and was it was sort of pre Silicon Valley, but it was you know already everybody it was coming, had, was, right? Yeah, it was happening. Yeah, uh, Lockheed and all the, the those we not never even think about them in that way, but so yes, Cupertino High School, Berkeley, right. really a gal from the Bay Area, um, and I was drawn into, for no particular reason, but in those days I didn't really, wasn't going to go to law school and have a career. We all thought our careers would unfold in front of us and we would never have used the word career. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you might join me in this, Alicia. It was just another time mm -hmm. where looking ahead, what didn't seem that necessary, having health care, which we didn't have. Thank God for California's version of... Um, what do, what do we call it? I used to, I used to be on it, but back then, um, medical, medical, no heck yeah, uh, version of Medicaid, obviously, mm -hmm. and uh, so I was drawn in with from friends of mine who happened to be. It was a very thriving poetry scene in San Francisco, very thriving. It was the 70s, and into the a, ra a little funky beyond funky radio station called KPOO, Poor People's Radio. Cape doesn't sound great, the word, Cape but Cape. actually it stood for poor. They had got been able to put an R there, it would have been. But it was under the line. It was Poor People's Radio. And it was run by, actually, um, they, it was new, and it was run started up by activists and who seemed really old. They were like 29 and 30. <laughs> <laughs> They've been part of the San Francisco, um, the, the, the protests at San Francisco State, which is probably lost in the midst of time for most everyone listening now, but it predates... Uh, People's Park at Berkeley and all that. I mean, it was a 60, a real mid-60s um, thing, and it was about black power. So this station was a black station, black and Latino, uh, people of color. They called it in those days third world. I've, that, that's gone out of date kind of, but, but, but I was there because I was amongst friends, and I had my little show, Women's Voices, and of course they paid me not a dime, and so I was, uh, I, I, I had waitress jobs, what I had, to keep me going. Were there other examples of sort of activists? I mean, I'm thinking of KPFA across the bay in yeah. Berkeley. Did you were you looking to KPFA as a model, or were you just developing this? How did you? How did? Why? Why radio? Well, me, the radio was friends, and also I I got my second class license really easy. It's like the getting a driver's license, license engineer's license. You so used I, to need license to you be had on the license air. on a wall, uh -huh. and they had to, there had to be a person in the room that had a license. Not that anybody ever checked, ever, ever, ever. But uh, so people ran their boards, just like we're just you, like, yeah. Alicia, are doing right now. <laughs> and I felt very like this little room, actually, in its way. But the whole place was like this one room. And um, uh, yeah, so how did uh, KPFA actually was a, a presence in what it was? Is a strange way of presence we were working against. We didn't think of it was that it way. Like we the were establishment. Yes. Interesting. And it was, it, and I didn't even. I mean, NPR was on the air, but I was, uh, you know, KQED, my gosh. But it was um, not even in the picture uh, of what we were doing because we were so, so grassroots. <laughs> but the idea was, this is a community radio station. What is the community in San Francisco? And boy, also Asian, too. And boy, I tell you, it was a very fierce, it was a small little group of stations uh, that were there were about five of them around the country and one up in Alaska. I remember that. But basically, we'd look at KPFA and think, well, if I had, um, it, it, I mean, to be honest, it was. I'm white. Okay, let's be clear about that. But he was white, full stop. KPFA was. Yes. Really, it, that's shocking. As far well, we could look it up, and I, yeah. I, I, I'm sure it's not nine. 
it, it's 90% or 95%. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I mean, in terms of the people who were known. So this station was a kind of a counter. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even when I was there, they had a they had an uprising of sorts. Mm-hmm. And it was a coalition of uh, people of color wanting to work at KPFA. And so they sort of did set up a system, but it was separate. So, you know, people think, people, th- I'm... Uh, I've discovered what you discover after a while. After you, if you, you know, that uh, people think what's happening now sort of never happened before, either because they're too young to remember or because they've never come across that in their personal lives. No one lives. ever told them the stories. Well, what we're seeing, everything in this last two, three years, me too, to some degree. Uh-huh. Um, that's why my show is called Women's Voices, because we were very like, we want to get in on this. I'm not, KPFA had plenty of women, I think, but um, that wasn't the problem. But yeah, and the whole idea of bringing in people of color, people who have been traditionally disenfranchised. Um, there's network language now that talks about people on the margins. I wouldn't use that word, but people who are there are using that word. And that's what the thinking was at KPO at the time. But it was so much fun that nobody sat around thinking right. about it. We just lived our lives. And, you know, I mean, I lived in a house on Lower Haight Street that was like, oh, you guys are going to hate this, a three-story <laughs> Victorian with... We all went back and forth, three sets of people and um, three groups of roommates, and we had so much room. It was so huge, these mansion-y apartments, um, that we had one whole room that we just closed off, me, myself and my two roommates. And we were all friends, and Kapu was a, a lot of us were, there, well, there weren't so many of us, there was about six of us, but I mean, um, we were all sort of connected. And when I say lower hate, lower hate, hate had already gone. Hate was already the dregs. It wasn't summer of love there. And Lower Hate was actually, um, we lived across the street from a housing development that we called Pink Pam, the, the Pink Palace, because it was painted bubblegum pink, terrible thing. And they were just starting to do the Western edition, good, good version of redevelopment, but it was a wreck. Mm-hmm. And it was, this is like just Fillmore and Hate and, um, uh, or Webster and Hate. Uh-huh. Okay, some of you guys will know these streets. Yeah, I've, and, I've, and, I've and, stayed yeah, in that neighborhood yeah. for sure. And it was a, it was a, Scary place, actually, uh-huh. but not for us. Nobody bothered us, but huh. there was a lot going on there that was, you know. Was it kind of the the after burn of the summer of love kind of? Well, it was a few years later, uh-huh. you know, almost 10 years. Well, about seven years later. Uh-huh. Um, no, no, it was, uh, again, it was uh, a Western edition area. It was, uh-huh. it was, it was the, just the black area mm-hmm. of, of San Francisco. I see. And, and so you had one little section of it that was the way people were treated when they, when, uh, when all the, when the houses had all been torn down that uh-huh. had accommodated people and there there was this displacement of, yeah yeah but it was you know KPOO itself was down what did i tell you the tenderloin right. <laughs> so i just it, it the tenderloin and now that's now for 20 years now it's been south of market soma, soma. but we were so south of market we were so we were on <laughs> outer planet of of like Natoma Street, she uh, remember it as just a dive, just a, a, an alley with, with empty garages and things, and we got one of them. So that's a long That's where the radio was, station was, is in this it empty was in a garage, garage in Natoma Street. So <laughs> how I got into radio is a funny thing because you, A, couldn't do it now. You'd have to right. be an intern. That's a good way in, by the way. I mean, Ira Glass, um, Ari Shapiro, Audi, Cornish. They, these guys were interns. At NPR. At NPR. And to be an intern at NPR these days, and I'm, I'm quite sure to some degree, to the degree people have intern programs around the country, you have, I have seen a thousand 
applicants for a hundred. I mean, I've personally seen them, but I've had an editor show me a pile this high, and you look at them and you think, I think, we both think, we all think, anyone who's been there longer than 25 years thinks, I never could have gotten a photo. No, it's not never true. Never would have gotten have. in. I was five Beta Kappa, you know, I was, <laughs> but I probably could have, but well, it's right. a different mentality. Um, there's no, the doors were wide open, as long as you didn't care that anybody was listening. <laughs> All four of your listeners on KPU. All seven listeners in San Francisco. Well, uh, my guest is Renee Montaigne, a voice that you will hopefully be very familiar with from hosting Morning Edition for NPR News from 2004 to 2016, and also continuing to report as a special correspondent for NPR. I'm Alicia Bales. This is Byline Mendocino. And what I like to do is focus on local journalism and local newsmakers. But today I'm very excited to have a national newsmaker and journalist here to talk with us. I mean, the thing about NPR is that, you know, we at KZYX, we're an NPR station. We've carried Morning Edition and All Things Considered and Fresh Air for 32 years. As long as we've been here, it's been part of the cornerstone of what the station does. We're kind of a, an interesting hybrid between NPR, national, and extremely hyper-local, and we've managed to make this balance work for 32 years, um, bringing to our rural community NPR news, but also, you know, reflecting the community voices back in. I don't I don't think there are a lot of KZYX models around uh, with the NPR and the grassroots, um, but, you know, we love it. We make it work, and it's amazing to hear that your start was in a very grassroots, very... Hyper-local. Yeah, hyper-local, like <laughs> the neighborhood. Blocks. Exactly. <laughs> and, and also also, um, this this kind of calling to radio, too, like it was fun. It was with your friends. You guys were all young, but you were trying to create something in the world. And and I want to hear how that bridge to NPR happened. Like, I think there are a lot of idealists at NPR. I, it, I, I There are. There really are. When, um, yeah, it was definitely a mission. You know, one thought of being there as a mission. With, I must say in the first instance, it really was just the fun. These poets, I, I was telling you the other day, one of the poets that, a good, my dear friend, Antazaki Shange, um, p- created a poetry, choreo poetry show called For Color Girls Who've Considered Suicide. The Rainbow is Enough. Um, she ended up, you know, at the, first, at the Public Theater in New York and, and then, you know, Broadway. All right, so that was a big name. But there were other big name people who who became, I mean, young people who, of, of that caliber. Mm-hmm. Why were they at that radio station? I don't know. We were discovering, I mean, I do know kind of, but there was some and magnetic pull stronger than the moon that was dr- dr- pulling us all together. In my case, it just happened to be a big, great moment in San Francisco for young poets, um, poetry slams and things before the rest of the country, even before New York got on. To Yet it. another thing that is contemporary, but has a long history that people may not know that we didn't come up with this. <laughs> yeah, I hate to say I did. No, I'm not kidding. No, but then, then it followed, you know, of course, in San there Francisco, were the poets. Beats. Yeah, I mean, we, you, everybody had the lineage is, is strong and goes back. Uh-huh. And, and so, and, and youth helped it did because um and parents who don't ask you every day so what are you going to do with your life after college a university not my parents they were like anything i did was just just great and they were excited they didn't understand it that much they listened to it um but um at that time but so, so you npr yeah NPR yeah, was, the road from KPU to the, npr well, the road from KPU is very simple seriously when this is how corny and off the top it was 
when my friends started getting traction in the work they were doing, I'd start with Ensuzaki. Suzaki, she, it, we, I moved to New York along with them, about seven people at the same time, including literally my best friend, still to this day, and then roommate. Um, we got a little house, which was a tiny little house in the West Village, um, suddenly realized how, what it felt to pay for rent. Well, the rent stayed the same, but the house got out about 10, it was 10% of the size of what we had in San Francisco. And, um, and then, well, uh, there was a person, I had also been working with something called Pacific News Service, which was a print thing, and um, I got to know one of the, a woman who came over um, to NPR to run what was then called, oh, what they call it, the Acquisitions Unit, which is today the National Desk. Okay. It was a way of getting, uh, getting stories from freelancers because NPR in 1980, 81, didn't have but, I think I'm, I'm get this straight, pretty close, approximately four people outside of, or five people outside of Washington, D.C. Two of them, Neil Conan, and um, who else was there? Oh, Ira Flato, and uh, three of them were in New York City. Oh, and Margot Adler, I should say. So actually, you had four people in New York City. But after that, it, it was all the way to Chicago. There's Scott Simon all the way jump all the way to California and you have um, America oh, what was America Rodriguez we've never heard from since I mean, she she left radio right and she was that. in LA she was our LA person okay that was our coverage of the country wow the day I got there and so freelancers here we go again it's hard to be a freelancer today but for NPR there was a we had they had a we had a bureau luckily and New York was chock full of stories. So it was a big time for New York in the 80s. Uh -huh. And so I was asked to freelance, and within like oh, six months, I had a desk, I had a phone dedicated to me. I, had, I was a shadow staff, and I'll tell you something. They got sued by people who were on contracts, and I don't mean sued, but our contract people, who were all freelancers, um, got together, and they ended up hiring about nine people about two years after I got there because Jackie Lydon, um, I'm trying to think of all the people, that, quite a few people who ended up being long-term correspondents, um, basically, uh, when I say sued, I, you know, came to them with a legal case that they had to hire them because it was against um, federal work laws. Kind of like gig workers now? Kind of. It was like gig workers, uh -huh. where good for you, but, but no health care, no nothing. I was a straight-up freelancer, and luckily for them, but not me, they didn't have to give a contract to, to New York to keep you. Kansas City, yes, a contract person in. Um, oh, Howard, Howard Berkus. Those are the people, like I say, that got on from one day to the next. Right in the early 80s. In the early 80s. So I was in New York, tons of stories, freelancing forever, six years. How much did they pay for a f story in those days? Oh, you don't want to know. It's so I, painful. Um, it, even in those days. It was like $35. No, I could get paid as little as $200 for a story that I spent almost a week on. Oh, But then that goodness. was me. So I was extremely productive. <laughs> so I had to be. I've been very unproductive through COVID, but I was extremely productive when my life was on the line. And I did have side gigs. I would refile, rewrite for the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting, CB, yeah, CBC, and occasionally Australian public, uh, uh, ABC. Sort Australian of throughout the English-speaking world. A little. Not the BBC. They didn't uh, accept almost anything with an American accent. Oh, They were wow. very haughty, haughty about it. But they also had a bureau, and they had people. Here. They had people. So I learned as I went on NPR. I am afraid 
to see it, hear almost anything I wrote back then. But apparently I was good enough that I was much in demand. Okay, so that you, you could pitch them and they would always want your stories and you could I, always sell them. I was lucky that way because they used to have conferences. They don't anymore, but they had conferences drawing in these freelancers and station. And the, the stations had very few, very few stations, unlike today, in the 1980s. Very few stations had solid news news departments. Like again, I know you've just hired for the first time in years a news director. So there's a flowering that's going to happen and about here. Resurgence and it's happening everywhere and has been for some years. But at the time, they would pick people who had been on the air and people. I would see complain they couldn't figure out who how to get to who and what. I felt so felt for them. But I was in New York in the bureau, and I was basically a shadow. I don't think NPR people knew I was freelancing. I mean, really, because I was on the air all the time. And I was even fill. no, I didn't ever fill in for a host until at the very end when they hired me as a host. I filled so, in. So you went from being a freelancer, reporter, Straight reporter, to being, to being a host. Host of all things considered. Wow. That was a difficult, uh, that was a difficult. Transition. Totally different job. Totally. Oh, I can't tell you how different a reporter is to a host. Surprising. You hear that so much now hosts and reporters mingling over it, which is great. But really, you, I'll tell you one simple thing about the difference. As a reporter, I, I was kind of the Columbo version of reporting, of those of you who remember that or have seen <laughs> that show, where you'd go, really? Oh, huh. I didn't ha want to seem smart. I didn't want to seem like I knew a lot. I wanted to catch people, not because I wasn't investigative. It wasn't that, but just to catch them off a little. And in fact, sometimes I would say, well, do you think, do you think, I mean, what you just said, and I'd keep talking, I swear it was a technique, and people would finally just blurt out. Like, what I mean is, blah, 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 and there I had my cut. Your cut, your sound kidding. bite that you could edit out all the rest oh, of it. Oh, me going stumble, stumble. <laughs> it's kind of how I am sometimes anyway, but it, I, I, I understood that worked, and I didn't use it all the time, but sometimes I'd be looking at someone getting nowhere, nowhere, and with good, a good response. I didn't care what the thing was, obviously, in some situation, like a fire or something, I didn't do that. But if I'm trying to get somebody to say something interesting or, or even true, and um, I, I would start stumbling around trying to make sure I was there with them. And the eye contact, we never... Can you, can you demonstrate? <laughs> can you pretend like you're interviewing me and, and, and show me how this well, works? I must know. Okay, so Alicia, <laughs> you're not really being too open about your new band. Oh! Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Well, we have a gig on Sunday that, that was just announced in the community <laughs> calendar at the Mendocino Environmental Center from 4 to 6. Sorry. See, it worked. Oh, my God. You're amazing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, dear. Like, no, I might say something like, um, okay, um, I, I know you're a singer, but I mean... And you've said, yes, I'm a singer. And I'm like, okay. Uh, yes, I'm a singer. And what made you want to be a singer? Mm. And you go. I singing is good. Yeah, exactly. That would be a real problem. Like right? So far, nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. So I might go, okay, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've tried to sing myself, um, but I don't know how easy it is to do that. Um, and theoretically, you would burn out. Listen, let me tell you, when I take a breath, like, oh, you know, I see. Okay, so I they, they want to finish your sentence. They want to finish the sentence. And right. the, actually, the more withholding and maybe formidable people are, that can actually work. Not an actually genuinely somebody like you, because you Ooh, would I uh, you would you open stuff. up. Yeah. You want to tell me the story. But somebody who's, I don't know, has a position that they're protecting, um, 
because uh, I didn't do a lot of political reporting, so that wasn't the problem. But lots of people are like that. You know, I um, always wonder why, um, you know, when, when someone agrees to an interview and then they won't talk to you. <laughs> It's it's kind of you know. I had Carol King once. You know, she put out a. a, a she, I love Carol King. I mean, tapestry, right? And, yeah. Uh, you know, she goes so far back, and she has such a wonderful, amazing background. But people wouldn't have known it five years ago, or seven years ago, or six years ago. She put out a memoir, and it and she, she kept saying to me, I, I don't mind saying this because in the end, she was on Broadway. That show show went on Broadway. She was really happy, and it was like literally a year after our interview. But it was just this, the worst, the interview you never want to have. She kept saying, I'd say, well, yes, and you were in a Tin Pan Alley. And she goes, yeah, well, that's in the book. <gasps> I mean, uh, but what it really was, and I knew this, but I wasn't very sympathetic. I was sympathetic to the fact that what it was was she didn't want to tell her same old story f for the 50th time. The trouble was she wasn't understanding, which I was going like this, you know, <laughs> gritting my teeth because I wanted to say, listen, there's a million people, zillions of people listening who were just plain young enough not to know your story, and it's so fabulous. That was going in my head. But in my mouth, I was going, well, it, let's just give this a few more minutes. And, and then she did that like six times, some version. And you get people like, I only... I'm not, I'm trying not to, it was difficult, and people that you least expect. There was someone I expected to just, wah, open and, uh, up yes. and tell the whole You'd story. You'd have too much tape. You'd have Beautiful to pick memoir. from, yeah, a million different stories. Yeah. But, um, so the thing that's amazing about your work with NPR, well, many things are amazing about what NPR does, but, like, you were telling me on the way here that, about your interview with Sir Paul McCartney, like when oh, you God. call Paul McCartney, he says yes. You know, like that—that that is really amazing to have that kind of access because of what NPR has become. I mean, everybody says yes. The president does. The president say yes to NPR? No, he doesn't. The only people who don't. I mean, Obama finally. Stevens keep had to write wrathful letters to his people saying, "Why is he not on our air?" And so Steve actually cut broke through. And once Steve broke through, he did six interviews with President Obama um, because I think President Obama was felt that, well, I don't think he, it wasn't NPR by then. It was like Steve, there was a comfort zone there. Steve was so smart, uh -huh. it, it, you know, and they, they filmed it. So that made sense. These guys, no, the Bush people said, uh, George W., those people, well, before, before George W., nobody even discussed being on the air, really. Clinton, the first time he was on the air with NPR, and you would have thought Mara Eliasson was already famous. Robert was doing it. It was on All Things Considered. The Sunday that it broke about the uh, blue, uh, the Monica Lewinsky story broke, and the blue dress came up. That Sunday evening, it was the Washington Post broke it, and they woke up the morning of this interview that they'd killed themselves to get with Clinton. And he'd been there years, and, and was not and listened to NPR, but was. I, it's weird almost. It, it, radio does not seem to appeal to any of these presidents, no matter who they are. Chris, President Trump was like, don't even think about it. You know, he doesn't even know who we were. But the rest of them were like, nope. But I was going to say with Clinton, they woke up and you can hear it back. Go back to that day. Find it on the date on the calendar that Monday. And in, in, in within NPR, it's in the archives as far as I know. I don't know. These archives are a little fishy now these days. But sometimes things are there and sometimes they're not. But that that interview ought to be there, and it's Robert Siegel tiptoeing around, trying to ask him about something that nobody could verify 
I mean, it was a scoop oh, of the Washington so Post. So you knew about the blue, they the knew Monica about Lewinsky it, but couldn't, blue dress. And, and, and it's him sort of saying, it's really Robert himself sort of saying some really polite version of, is could any of this be true? And Clinton saying in a very sly halfway, no, don't be ridiculous. Those aren't the words at all, but that was the interaction. And then it was over because it was the trick of all the days of all the years he was president. So presidents, and we got to the Bush W group, and they were told bluntly that um, W had no interest whatsoever in coming on and wasn't going to, actually told that. Got to President Obama, they just were resistant. They knew who we were, but they had other... I mean, we interviewed him before while he was... I interviewed him while he, well, he was, was a senator. While he was campaigning. Uh -huh. And I interviewed while he was a senator. Um, and easy to get. But once they become president, and they never got Trump and... I don't know what's going on with President Biden, but we would get Biden now. And we did get Obama. Thank you, Stephen Skeet. Okay. I was amazed. You persevered. Ra he I love the idea of wrathful letters to the president. Well, no, not to him, to his, so. to, to his people. <laughs> but it had that quality. Excuse me, but you really must be on public radio. You are doing a injustice to your, you know how Steve is very articulate in these kinds of situations, compelling. And I saw one letter, I was, I'm making this up, just let me just say, but it was <laughs> along the lines of, it, you would be doing an injustice to the American de democracy if you don't show up on the most uh, vibrant version of, um, of journalism within this democracy. <laughs> so yeah, he, would, he, would, he would call on his you know, better angels, I mean, not his personally, but the better angels of the, the guys who were guarding him. And, you know, that was a tough crew. And like I said, radio just didn't mean, and then, then they sold it, though. They sold it this way. Video, on, suddenly we could give them all the, you know, you go on CNN, you think, I act CNN, if you do, you know, or, or whatever. You get, <laughs> they're cycling, you know, they redo it yeah. hour after hour after NPR used to be, you're, you're on Morning Edition, hi, bye. I mean, it, it, even during Obama's time, like, okay, now, even by Obama, you could promise a video would go online, you could promise, you could sort of promise them a life, uh -huh. and we'll do it the day before, we even put it on the air, we'll stretch it out over three days, we'll repeat it, we'll, you know, you could, not like you had to beg, but I mean. Right, or like sell it to them or whatever. Yeah, but, but I mean, you could say this is this is really getting out there. Mm -hmm. Never mind that we had 13 million listeners. Well, I know, <laughs> really, the, the 13 million now, listeners? It went up to what 16. The wow. last height, and I don't take this as a personal compliment, but when I left on November of 2016, uh, December, that, that, that season, you know, that quarter, had the highest listenership we ever had. It was after it was Trump election, right? To the day of Trump's election, and we plateaued at that point. Mm -hmm. And now listenership, as we understand it, is going down, which doesn't mean people aren't getting it. I mean, right. I get it on my iPhone now so much, but I'm getting my station. That's right. I'm Things not getting mine, Hawaii Public Radio. I'm getting you guys. I'm yeah, getting stations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but so I'm not you're sure. streaming online, but you're still listening. I'm, oh, absolutely. And then there's uh, there's all of the other ways that people are getting this audio through podcasting and, and other other new sort of novel mm -hmm. ways of listening to stories, not on the radio, but the same sort of content. I want to let listeners know, I'm Alicia Bales live in the Fort Bragg studio today. This is Byline Mendocino, and my guest is Renee Montaigne, who is NPR's uh, special correspondent for NPR News, but also the host of Morning Edition for many, many years up until the fall, the winter of 2016, which was 
Good timing. A, a landmark here. <laughs> Good time to go, Good I guess. Good timing to leave. Um, and we, uh, Renee's in town for the Mendocino Film Festival. She's a juror on the documentary section of the film festival, which announced its winner last night, Blind Ambition, and had a, a special screening of that. Um, let's talk. Okay, so everybody who knew I was going to be talking with you wants to know this one thing. So I'm going to ask you, and I'm sure you've been asked a million times, but the NPR voice. People have this idea that there's, well, I mean, people who listen to NPR hear this sort of NPR style of speaking. You know, I, I know what you're saying. It's a, it's a funny thing, and so I'm interested that people were curious about yeah. that. The, the NPR voice, I think, is history, to be honest, and has been for some time. But it, it, it's sort of like when people used to talk about NPR listeners uh, driving Volvos and drinking Chardonnay. It's like I don't know anybody. Uh, sorry, Mendocino who's drunk <laughs> Chardonnay, and my my personal Volvo um, was was unfortunately wrecked, parked about twenty years ago, and I didn't get another one. So, um, and Chardonnay is not the top of most people's list anymore. So, I think that voice is is a little bit of a a memory of people who are longtime listeners, or a or a myth that it, it would have been the, actually, the, I can think of the voices, it would have been a deep, strong voice, a Bob Edwards voice, sort of. I mean, I can think of the people that I would call have the that The iconic voice. NPR voice. Yeah, Linda Wertheimer and, and um, Robert Siegel. And, and then Susan was an exception in one way. She didn't have that smooth voice, and that's why she was probably the most iconic person who's ever been on the air, Susan Stamberg. Um, people did... Look, nobody ever asked me to do anything with my voice. I mean, I've never had any coaching. I've never had, I mean, I am, and my voice changes a bit when I'm doing what we're doing now, when we're talking live. But when I'm concentrating and trying to do a story, of course, I, 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 I'm, I'm acting a little bit. And um, I mean, when I'm doing a story, you hear script, which, by the way, as a reporter, of course, I wrote all my scripts. I write a lot of the, as a host, wrote a lot of the intros and, and stuff you hear, surprisingly, by the way, we, we don't farm it out or didn't when I was working with Steve. Um, the world is so busy now and so many live things, hard to know, you know, exactly what, what our hosts are doing now. I'm not looking over their shoulders. But um, the, the voice I know in one sense was a real positive because it, 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 it generated a sense of, I think, warmth uh, and, and trust um, and positivity, even though we might be doing telling you terrible things, um, and kind of I think people felt. I, I remember I was hosting, uh, like I sub-hosted all through the '90s on Morning. I went over to Morning. I became a Morning Edition uh, special correspondent. Um, Alex Chadwick and I, and the, we'd, we'd fill in when Bob was Edwards was gone, which was almost never because he was really he was there, you know, every day, and but but. He did have a summer vacation, you know. So, but I was going to say, when Columbine happened, uh, I mean, it wasn't our thing exactly in the sense of breaking news and crazy breaking news. And um, we actually didn't, oh, we probably, I think Howard must have gone out. I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the, actually the whole thing. But I do remember the blur of, of feeling like having that balance of providing people with a horrible story, and that by then, then was so unusual. It a different feeling now with the, oh, oh yeah. my God, never, not again, every other day. That, but this was not unheard of. It's hard to remember that this was so unusual. Right. And then you get into 9-11. These things, it was like, oh, I should tell you a 9-11 story about, the, and then here is the voice. I was in Johannesburg, 
ready to go up to Zimbabwe, of all places, to do stories on health, because Zimbabwe was falling apart in a terrible way. <clears throat> and and um, it, I wasn't, I had, I had reported out of South Africa for, from the day Mandela was released. I arrived and off and on for the next four years until uh, the uh, ANC was elected and he became president. Uh, so probably out of those four years, I was there three. Um, and I, but I would always come back because we never we didn't have a staff position in South Africa. So in order to keep my fancy senior correspondent job, post all things considered, I had to be loaned to the national uh, the foreign desk. And so I would basically have to come back for a month or even three months. Okay. Um, I was happened to be, and then I kept covering things in that area as just as stories. I wasn't hosting yet. This was obviously September 11, 2001, and um, I was in Johannesburg. And of course, the time frame is is different there, and the attacks were about two in the afternoon. So I turned on the SABC, which is the BBC of South Africa, and um, the and I turned it on to find out what was happening because a friend called. She was an artist, and they had a monitor and they thought they thought it was a, had been switched to a movie oh. so someone went over and tried to switch in it was on sky news which is like cnn british sky news and she called me and said turn on the tv i was I, still jet lagged i was in the home of a friend typical npr i stayed the first four days at a friend's house they were at work i was sitting on the bed turned on the tv right when the second plane hit and then never got off that bed for hours but when i turned on the SABC, um, I, I watched Sky News for a while, but about an hour later I turned on. They had switched to NPR. Oh. They had turned over, there's, I don't know how they did it, but it was all NPR. I mean, they were handing it off. And it was, there was funny moments like when the guy, because this guy was a disc jockey guy, said, and now we're going to go to, uh, what did he say? He said, um, uh, Neil, uh, we're going to go to Neil and Rob, <laughs> meaning Robert Siegel. <laughs> Neil, Neil and Rob. But it was so amazing to hear NPR from my point where it was like, Oh, got it. Even now, I'm sorry. I'm tearing up. So remember, it was I was hearing Jackie Lydon walk in. I was hearing our people. I was hearing all the people from NYC, and it just felt like it's not. It's going to be okay, but it felt like I was in the warm arms of NPR. Uh -huh. You were with and, your, your folks, and I think all the listeners were. Yeah, I think all the listeners were, and they they brought on a, a beautiful um, commentator uh, oh, whose name I'm blocking. I'm, neglecting right now, um, to say it in poetic fashion, because that's how he talked. Mm -hmm. And it was extraordinary. But it, but here's also what happened, and this is about radio. About a week later, I went out to this place called, um, it was, uh, uh, it's Zululand, it's what it's called now, KwaZulu, Natal, it's a province, but it was called Zululand back then. Um, and it, it, uh, it, it in these villages, because I had something I was going to do anyway, and I, I knew some people there. So really out in the middle of nowhere. And I took a picture, and I wish I had it, but just imagine this picture. I took a picture. Oh, first of all, people came up to me, and I'm talking about village people came up to me and said, I'm so sorry for your country. Why did they come up to me and say that? Because I, in my, this picture that I have, I looked over. There is a rooster standing next to a red radio outside a traditional uh, grass rendezvous. They all had heard They're this listening. too. They mm -hmm. had all heard NPR. They had been in it. So the whole stretch of radio and the value of, of the sound of voices 
in a situation like that where you would have thought it was all visual, mm -hmm. to be honest, mm -hmm. is profound. My guest is Renee Montaigne. She is an NPR special correspondent and the host of Morning Edition, uh, NPR's national morning news program from 2004 to 2016, but uh, started up with NPR in 1981. Yeah, freelance, freelance. Freelance. <laughs> so um, you've been at this a very, very long time, and I'm just so grateful for you coming here and sharing, sharing your perspective and your experience and your stories with us, uh, because... Obviously, we're radio lovers, uh, NPR listeners, and NPR uh, uh, radio uh, creators. Definitely, a sense of the value of the voices of the people in our community, and um, it's as if NPR creates a national and a global community, reflecting these voices. And and one of the things um, that we talked about before was the rapport that you have with your co-hosts, and I think that's part of the joy of, of radio as well, is listening to, um, these are real people who really care and who also are interacting with each other. Um, one question I'm so curious about as somebody who listens to NPR's national news programming is like, can you give us a little backstage view of like how do you I, I mean I'm listening to it it sounds seamless people from all over the world reporters from Africa and from Afghanistan and you know war zones but then also hosts from Chicago LA New York Washington DC but yet it's all right there with me in my you know in my house while I'm getting ready for work or whatever it is how do you do that as a host like how <laughs> how does that work well if for starters, it's a group effort, yeah. obviously. Um, yeah, it's actually an odd situation in being a host and even a reporter. It's a group effort, maximum group effort. Producers, editors, meetings, things going on you don't know. Oh, my God, the technical people, our engineers. Um, at the same time, there's a, a, the other flip of it is you're on your own. <laughs> uh, you're not carried around. As a host, nobody's telling you what no, to say or writing your scripts for you or anything. Nobody. Well, there are script. It's a whole mix of things. Uh, look, if a, if a reporter in the field uh, wants you to ask these questions, they'll let you know what questions. You put them in your own words. But here's what I know, or here's what I, I need to get to. Because come on, that's an that's like a story in what's called a two way. A two way. So you're re interviewing a reporter. I learned this this year working yeah. with the California desk of NPR. Like uh, they've they're doing a new initiative. Well. It's not a new initiative, like everything we've been talking about. It's, it's ideas that people have been doing for years, but uh, the NPR California desk is making an effort right now to connect with the stations around California, all of the smaller NPR stations like KZYX, and sort of get stories from the, you know, the, the ground. of Because why not? I mean, we're all part of this network. You know, from the smallest station to KQED, we're all living on the front lines of our community. So why not, you know, make use of these these radio folks all over the state right so they're so they're doing this they're um so i you know and we we have our own way of doing things here at kzyx we we don't know the language of like what's a two-way so i learned you know doing an interview with the california report as a reporter they're interviewing me and and of course that's a that's a that's term a of art yeah so you did two ways and you know all all sorts of other um interviews and and stories and well, with things like that, if I, I mean, were I to be the person interviewing you, it's very likely I'd say, not you know, knock us out a few. 
questions you'd like to hear, essentially, because ah. this is what you know and this is what you're going to present. It's presentational to agree. I used to be honest when I was a reporter, a correspondent. I hated doing two ways and almost never did them. I so didn't I so felt that I was not the expert didn't want to be the story I didn't want to be this but I I was fine to write the stories there I was you know but I it was an actually in my case a sort of slight insecure thing which is very interesting some people are comfortable with that and yet I had no problem being a host but um so quickly how it's done well how it's done is such a mix of different depends on where what you're look where you're looking from it's the elephant you know where you're where you're touching um Today, quickly, people are able, and I'm amazed and so impressed with how they were able to use Zoom and um, the current technologies, um, uh, apps of all kinds, self-record iPhone apps, to survive this last two years because I was not hosting by right. any stretch or fill-in or anything. I mean, the last fill-in I did was March 14th. I did Scott's show the day that NPR, NPR sort of functionally shut down the next Monday. Uh -huh. And it was all, my God, we're in a pandemic. That And it was mostly live. And that was in and 2020. That, 2020. Uh -huh. That was my last hosting the end. But I got a taste of what it felt like to start talking about half the people were gone all of a sudden. They had like disappeared. Well, they were at home, but we weren't. We were. We hadn't perfected the having your producer at home. Wait a minute, he's at home. He's supposed to be in the room with me. I mean, especially for that show, you're a one host. You know, it's all on yeah. you, right? And things were live that hadn't been live before. We were doing updates like crazy. Nobody knew what they were talking about, and it was changing from minute to minute. I mean, that was the week before that they they got that they uh, postponed the Olympics. Um, South by Southwest was canceled. Blah blah blah, um, and so. Um, I know what it feels like, but I have to say I didn't endure it, and I have nothing but actual uh, gaga, like whoa, fan per girl way of how did they do this? But I will, I will say um, about the different ways I lived through it. I was, we were talking earlier, and I was saying, you know, I've been through every technology in the book, dating back to uh, a Selectric in South Africa in 1990. It was no use. All the compute, all the uh, the pat. You know, the computers were worth, was, was a, you had an easier way of racing things and whatnot. I mean, I faxed, I went down to a fax shop on Rocky Street, which, you know, to, to fax my scripts. They had to call me from NPO. It was so expensive to call out, and you couldn't really do um, phone interviews very well. So anything that was at all featurey. Um, you had to do your own tape, and it was rolling tape, like, what, what do we just call like it? Like reel-to-reel? Reel-to-reel, and you cut it oh. with a razor. Oh, my God. No, no, and you, you put it oh. on, you know, you put it on your reel-to-reel -reel from your cassette. It was cassettes, and then from, but if anything, so the way we got it there, the, this is a long time ago, but actually doesn't feel that long ago to me. The way we got it back to NPR, a feature with proper sound and everything. You'd go out, you'd get your five interviews. You'd, like, I'd be in a township war situation. I'd be interviewing people. I would, I would be very dramatic. And um, I'd write my stuff up. And of course, they didn't have this expectations now of immediacy. They couldn't. They, we, were connect, we had a re relationship with the BBC. Our bureau was at Bush House, London. That's the BBC headquarters for since you know World War One, and uh, the beginning of radio, whatever. And um, they would, you would 
call for a delivery person. Hi, we need a delivery person today. I would have my tape all set up. I would have recorded myself. I would have put a, a pillow, not a pillow, a duvet over my head in the bedroom because to make it a little bit softer. I mean, I never like did. while you were recording, you put a blanket over yeah, to, my for the acoustics. Ugh. I had never set up a studio because uh, they weren't going to pay for it. It wasn't worth it. So the, there you went. And it would fall Insta off your studio. head. <laughs> You'd have to redo it and redo it. It would like literally like, or you'd be going, oh, the thing is hot, you know. But you would give them. You got to have a light in there, right? You can't. Sometimes see. <laughs> you had to have a light, but I mean, in the daytime, it was okay. But the um, you would send this package. This guy would come, knock on the door, five o'clock. I was never ready, of course. He always had to wait five minutes. It was just part of the thing. Five o'clock, he'd take it to the airport. The, the BB, it would go into a BBC package. The, it would fly to London. The BBC would get our stuff, our stories, my story through customs, take it to Bush House. At Bush House, there was a satellite to NPR, and they would send it to NPR satellite. So you're sending it from South Africa on a plane. On a plane. With a courier for coming a 12, to your house. 12 hours. I mean, wow. plus everything that involves. So it was about 15-hour plane situation, you know, 20 hours maybe some days. Yeah, and then they would send it, and then the show would put it together, and they would run it. Now, that's a feature. So it had to be it had to be green ever green for at least like three days uh-huh. from the day you couldn't wrote it. Couldn't be dated. It could not be, be talking dated. about. And if you wanted something dated, let's say there was truly, you know, a big Mandela's announcement of something other, um, the, the, the phones in those days, they had screw on, for anybody over 40, you can remember this, they had screw on mouthpieces, uh-huh. right? And there was two little, I'm not saying this very well technically, I didn't need to know this really, but two little, it looks like, it's like, um, it's like on a car battery, and you have like, like little terminals, little terminals, little baby, little little thin terminals, and you use something called alligator clips. And what they <laughs> are is uh, two clips, exactly like mini cables that you do with your battery. Yeah, you jump your, teeny, your teeny, engine. teeny, and you would stick one on and one another, and then you would you would put a tape in the recorder, uh, because you needed a tape, and you would figure out where your tape was. You had to mark it with. You couldn't edit it, you just, you know. And then you would hit, you would hit uh, record, no, you would hit go and talk through a mic that would go through these alligator clips into the phone and go, and it was pretty clean. It was much better than just talking on the phone. It was quite clean. What? But that made you twist yourself like in pretzel fashion to do all of that, holding one thing, pushing, and and be real careful that you didn't push play and record when it hit your tape that you're trying to send because you would mix it in with tape. Uh, So this stuff was... We lived like that. You were just making it work when the technology did not exist. (laughs) Now, okay, so now if we have breaking news, we either zoom it or we will record it um, Mm -hmm. on our phone and just email it instantly. Instantly. I mean, I remember spending eight hours trying to upload a one-hour show that I had done when I was traveling in Europe for KZYX. And we were doing that. We were, like, trying to push this technology as hard as it, this was back in, I don't know, it was like 2002 or something. We were pushing it as far as it could get pushed um, at the time. But now it's it's all so fast and so instant and so easy. Um, we are, I knew this hour was going to fly by and it has. Um, so um, I want to let people know that my guest is Renee Montaigne, a very familiar voice from Morning Edition and um, NPR News. I'm Alicia Bales. This is Byline Mendocino. I think we have about two minutes left um, of this show today, and we're going to make way for Tony McSack and the wondrous world of music, which 
I get to see Tony because I'm live in Fort Bragg. Hey, Tony, he's on deck waiting for for his show to begin in just a couple of minutes. So, Renee, I want to thank you for being here. And you, would you, you know, tell listeners uh, one last time about the Mendocino Film Festival and, and, and what you're doing with it and, and how people can get involved in it this weekend? Well, first of all, it's very easy these days. All you have to do is yeah, look up MendocinoFilmFestival.com <laughs> if you're interested. I think it's pretty exciting, though. Everybody is excited. That's been my experience having been here since yesterday, uh, late afternoon. Um, yeah, there's these wonderful films, and some of them in competition. I was able to watch already seven of them in the documentary section, and um, I was uh, I'm involved because I'm a juror. Um, and um, I will say this: there's several really good films, really good ones. The one we chose as the best is Blind Ambition, which is perfect for Mendocino. And believe me, I neither I nor the other um, costume designer who was and the other movie two people. We're thinking about it, the Mendocino connection, but it is, if you're the interested wine. in wine, this yeah. story is your, this, this show is yours. And for the rest of it, I mean, they're doing a really bang up job. I was really impressed. And especially just coming back like this, I, I think it will rarely be more uh, fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So I highly, I just, I know everybody's knocking themselves out and, um, and it, it, it looks like fun. And so for the next three days, or two, I guess it's today and tomorrow. Uh-huh. And the and, big and white tent up there uh, in Mendocino right mm-hmm. off of and the then there's And there's like a, a three-screen um, theater here in, in Fort, Fort Bragg. Bragg that is showing, I think, uh, within um, two minutes. They're putting on three shows right now. Wonderful. I, that much I know about the schedule. So I'm not big on the schedule myself, but anybody who wants to look at it. Well, it's a big schedule. Yeah. There's a lot going but on. But I, I just want to say KZYX, I'm just so happy to be here. And I'm so happy to see your old building because I know you're moving to a new building, and I will be able to come to the new building sometime and say, oh, I remember the old building. It, it was like going to a... Log cabin in the middle of the woods. I couldn't believe it when we turned I off the know. main road and we turned left. Alicia and I said, "Oh my God, you're, this is real." <laughs> Nothing to your right. I Nothing went, to you. I left. went right into a little forest, <laughs> and then there was this little mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been doing or radio with, for there for you know KZYX thirty-two right years, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, Renee so. Montaigne, thank you so much. It's been really fun. I, I Absolutely. For me, thank you so much for having me. Renee Montaigne has been my guest. It's Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales, and I will uh, be back with you in two weeks. Stay tuned now for the wondrous world of music. This has been a production of KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.